Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm Jeff Sankoff, your host, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. With this episode, the TriDoc Podcast is now three years old, and I have to say it's kind of nice to finally be getting out of the toddler years. Over those 80-plus episodes, I've had a chance to speak with some amazing people on a wide array of topics. I've discussed everything from the dietary habits of early humans on the African plains with a paleoanthropologist, learned about how a professional triathlete managed to race Kona while living with cystic fibrosis, all the way to hearing how immigrants to this country and people of color can face challenges in getting into our sport that I really never would have imagined. But beyond all of the amazing conversations that I've had on the show, the thing that has made this whole venture worthwhile have been the conversations that I've had with listeners of this program whenever and wherever I've had the good fortune to come across them. To hear that what I am doing is beneficial to them and that my program is succeeding in informing, educating, and entertaining is really extremely gratifying. And I'm always so happy to meet people or hear of people who have heard the program and gain something positive out of it. As we head into the holiday season and the beginning of my fourth year producing this program, I want to take yet one more moment to thank each and every one of you for continuing to put your trust in me and for always coming back to hear what I and my guests have to say. I tell all of the athletes who I coach that we're, in a, we're on a journey together and that I am honored that they choose to have me along. Together, we set the destination as the achievement of their goals that we derive in partnership, and then we set off towards it. Well, similarly, you, my listeners, and I are on a journey as well, learning about the science behind so many different things available to us as athletes and understanding just which ones actually have utility. It's a journey that I have very much enjoyed, and I thank you for the opportunity to be along with you for it. If you've enjoyed that journey even half as much as I have, I hope that you'll take a moment to leave a rating and a review wherever you download this content. The podcast has grown over three years, but kind of slowly. And if it's to reach more people, it's only going to do so because you, my listeners, tell others and because you're kind enough to let people know via ratings and reviews wherever you download that it's worth their time. But even if you don't do this, thank you all the same. It's been a fun three years, and I look forward to the next three just as much. On the show today, I spoke about blood testing program Inside Tracker on the last episode, and this time around, it's time to look at another similar company, and it's even more outlandish claims. A listener wrote to me to ask about the DNA company and its claims that in analyzing your genome, they could determine what kind of athlete you are and prescribe services to help you live your best life, taking your genetics into account. If it sounds too good to be true, well, have a listen to the segment and see what it's all about and what I think about it. And that's coming up shortly. Later, I'm joined by age grouper Mike Ween. Mike has been racing marathons and triathlons for many years now and has put together quite an impressive resume of results. This past September, Mike won the 70.3 World Championships for the 70-74 men in St. George, Utah. And then, two weeks later, went on to Boston, where he won his age group in the Boston Marathon. When you add in his remarkable successes in his business career, it all adds up to one pretty incredible individual. And I had the pleasure of talking with him about it all. You can hear our conversation in a little while. Before all of that, 
I want to take a moment to acknowledge Lewis Schindler, a new Patreon supporter of this podcast. Like many others, Lewis has decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, he wanted to get access to all kinds of interesting interviews available only to my supporters. Right now, there's bonus content in the form of interviews with Simon Marshall, Mark Allen, Dave Scott, Dan Emfield, and Alex Larson, along with video talks by me on the science of tapering and off-season health and wellness. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you can get access to all of that and more right now. That URL again is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, thank you in advance just for considering. On the last episode of the podcast, I looked at the merits of the blood analysis program being heavily advertised through the holiday season inside Tracker. In the episode before that, I talked about iron and who needs to consider testing for that element in order to look for deficiency. Well, in the medical segment for this episode, I'm going to take a look at yet another form of blood testing, and this time at the behest of a listener who wrote to me with a question. Barry had come across a company that was advertising genetic testing for athletes, and he wondered if there was anything to the claims being made about the usefulness of this information. The specific company in question that Barry was referring to is one of many that offer a similar service to predominantly young, healthy people, and even to the parents of children, promising, quote, genetic optimization for high-performance people, end quote. Now, in order to answer this question, I kind of need to do a lot of background work first in order to explain some basics about the science being bandied about here, as well as get into what exactly these companies are basing their whole enterprises on. Then, we'll take a look at what they are claiming and see if anything of what they are saying really actually holds up. But let's begin first with some really basic stuff, and that is a lightning-quick lesson on genetics. Now, for some of you, this is going to be really simplistic, and for others, this may be the first time you've heard some of these things, so I'm going to do my best to cover the highlights, but not bore or lose anyone in the process. Now, I'm guessing that most people will know that within our cells, we have 23 pairs of chromosomes, and that those chromosomes are made up of DNA. Now, DNA itself is a really highly complex chemical made up of four different nucleosides, which are represented in shorthand by the letters A, C, G, and T. Now, long sequences of nucleosides within the molecule of DNA can be read as a seemingly random string of letters. So you can imagine A, C, C, G, G, T, A, A, and, and so forth. But within the machinery of the cell, these codes or sequences are actually interpreted and then constructed in order to make proteins and are essentially the blueprint for everything that follows from a lowly single cell that then goes on to develop into a fully formed person. In fact, these complex coded sequences are, in fact, our genes. Now, many people who have taken at least high school biology will be familiar with the concept of Mendelian genetics. Gregor Mendel was a 19th century Augustinian friar who had a penchant for botany and was quite a scientist. Through his experiments with pea plants, he derived an understanding of basic inheritance and came to describe both dominant and recessive genes. His constructs are what we refer to as Mendelian genetics and are relevant to this day. What Mendel, what Mendel figured out was that every organism inherits half of their DNA from one parent and half from the other. 
So in humans, where there are 23 pairs, 23 chromosomes come from your mother and 23 from your father to give that resulting 23 pairs. Each of these chromosomes carry the same genes. But in some cases, a characteristic may be coded for by a dominant gene or by a recessive one. Now, this straightforward interpretation of genetics was informed by Mendel's observation of the result of breeding pea plants that had different characteristics. For example, if he crossed one plant that had a flower that was, say, white with a plant with a flower that was, I don't know, yellow, he would then see what color the resulting offspring had. And from that, he was able to then determine which color was encoded by the dominant gene and which by the recessive gene. Well, for better or for worse, humans are not pea plants, though at times over the past couple of years, one could potentially be forgiven for confusing the two based on behavior. I digress. The reality is that Mendelian genetics, while still applicable in humans, are really only very rarely so, because human genetic expression is a much more complicated affair than it is in simple pea plants. For example, we know that there are diseases that can be explained by simple Mendelian inheritance. These include things like sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, and Huntington's chorea. And that's to name a few, but these are very much in the minority. Most diseases are not encoded that way. And complicated, complicated aspects, things like personality, physical characteristics like hair and eye color, height and weight, as well as all manner of other things that make us truly human, are incredibly hard to relate back to simple inherited genetics that can be explained by autosomal dominant or recessive type genes. Now, there are many reasons for this. First, there's the fact that so much of who we are is dependent on how we are raised and what environment we grow up in and are exposed to. This is kind of the classic nature versus nurture argument that is very relevant in this case. Then, there is the fact that the vast majority of physical traits are simply not encoded by single genes. Human genetic expression can be a really complex matter to tease out, and I'm not going to get into great depth here, but it's important to understand the difference between genotype and phenotype. Your genotype is what your genes are. They are specifically, do you have this specific gene for this specific characteristic? For example, you have the gene to have blue eyes. Therefore, your genotype is that you have the blue eye gene. Now, your phenotype, on the other hand, is what your actual traits are. Let's say that, in reality, you have brown eyes. So your phenotype is brown eyes, even though your genotype is blue eyes. Now, when there's a difference between phenotype and genotype, it's because the link between the two is simply not that straightforward. And there are a wide variety of things that can cause this discrepancy. Maybe there are other genes that affect whether or not the genotype is expressed as a phenotype. Or, alternatively, maybe there are just other aspects of development or other aspects, say, nutrition or a whole host of possibilities that can impact whether or not genotype is expressed as phenotype. Now, geneticists and physicians understand this disconnect and so are much more prone to using probabilities. For example, if you're known to have a specific genotype, that is to say if you have a specific gene, geneticists will rarely say that this is guaranteed to then result in a definite phenotype. Instead, they tend to speak in terms of likelihoods. So if you have the genotype for blue eyes, you are much more likely to have blue eyes 
but it's not 100%. Does that make sense? And this is true for most diseases as well. Very few genes actually predict disease with absolute certainty. Instead, when a gene is known to be associated with disease and is then identified within a person, a geneticist will then say that because the gene is present, the likelihood of developing the disease at some point in the person's life is known to be a certain percentage. And that percentage is greater than zero, but always less than 100%, except in those cases where the disease is inherited by Mendelian genetics, like in Huntington's Korea, where it, the presence of the gene is pretty much 100% then predictive. So again, those kinds of things are very rare. Most of the time, genes only give a probability of an actual phenotype happening. So the take-home message here is that knowing your genes does not mean knowing how you will turn out. We simply can't take that leap, especially right now with our basic understanding of how genotype actually translates to phenotype. Okay, now that's the main background that we need to tackle. So let's look at why this subject is important to triathletes. Over several years, many different researchers have tried to identify genes that are linked with athletic ability. Now, more and more, we understand that genetics clearly have an impact on the ceiling of athletic potential. So geneticists have been trying to identify if there are any specific genes that could be used to identify those people who are those with the highest ceiling and most likely to succeed in specific kinds of sporting pursuits. Well, two genes seem to be candidates for this specific idea. And there are reasons for why they look like the possible ones that could be kind of a key to this whole idea. The ACTN3 and the ACE genes both code for specific processes in muscles. So it kind of makes sense that people who have certain versions of these genes might be predicted to have improved ability in specific types of sports. And over time, there actually have been some studies that have borne this out, with researchers finding that there seems to be an association, specifically with the ACE gene, relating to which version of the gene you were born with, predicting, or not really predicting, but being associated with what kinds of sports you can excel at. One version of the gene, for example, seems to be associated with improved performance and endurance, while the other is associated with improved performance in sports that uh, require strength and power. Now, the problem is that the research on this matter has really been far from consistent and is not, frankly, all that compelling. Studies that have shown an association between the gene and the performance and the type of performance tend to be very small and often don't have really good methodology. While studies that have larger populations and those that employ really good strict methodology often tend to show no such association. Overall, several authors have opined that the evidence in this matter is really far too thin to make any good conclusions whatsoever. To really make any kind of conclusions, they say, you would need many tens of thousands of subjects, uh, the kinds of studies that have been done for identifying genes that are linked to diseases. And the sport-specific gene studies, really, they're nowhere near this kind of number of people that have been looked at. Of course, this hasn't stopped several companies from jumping into this arena and making some pretty amazing-sounding promises based, from what I can tell, on the public misconception of what genetic testing limitations really are. 
As I said, Barry wrote to me to ask me specifically about a company, and that company is called, quite simply, the DNA Company. But this is just one of many companies that are offering similar services. Inside Tracker, for example, does some version of genetic testing as well. But the DNA Company has a very slick website, and if you go to it, you'll see a lot of really happy-looking people on there. The inference I get is that they are so happy because they all had their DNA scanned by this company and now understand their lives so much better. Now, the site is very long on video presentations of how your life can be changed if only you knew what your genes said you could do, but it's also pretty thin on specifics. For example, what genes are they looking at, and what is the science that allows them to make any kinds of conclusions that they say they will make if they identify them? Furthermore, they go out of their way on this site to say that based on your genetic profile, they will then be able to tell you how you should act, as though somehow your genes are 100% predictive of things happening if you don't follow their guidance. For example, I looked at the various reports that they uh, say they will generate based on your genome. One of them is a fitness report. And under the fitness report, they promise that they will be able to say things like, how long should you work out? Should you do more weights or cardio? When's the best time to work out? And they say that you can get answers to these questions based on your genomic profile. Now, as we've seen, this is all clearly fantastical and not at all based on any kind of reality, based on what we currently understand in human genetics. And for the privilege of being sold this fiction, you pay $399. And that's before they start recommending their prescriptive services that they also charge for. The reality, of course, is that this whole enterprise is a case of misrepresenting what the technology is actually capable of. Sure, we could sequence an entire genome, but knowing that information is light years away from knowing what that information actually means to any individual. The misapplication of this technology has the potential for much more sinister aspects as well. The DNA company actually offers itself up as a resource to parents who might want to know whether or not they should start or whether or not they should bother getting their children into certain types of sports. Now, this is patently absurd. The mere suggestion that knowing a person's DNA can somehow predict their athletic potential is ludicrous. And to pigeonhole children in that way seems very unfair, if not borderline unethical. As one author I read stated quite eloquently on this subject in a paper that he wrote, Quote, discussion needs to be opened on the meaning of sport and of physical activity in childhood as compared to the meaning of sport in adult and especially professional athletes. In other words, let children play for the sake of play. Let them explore what they like and gravitate to whatever they want without the need to always be performing at some elite level or feel that they're genetically predisposed to something and therefore have to do that. If you love triathlon and get some genetic test that suggests you shouldn't be doing it because you don't have the endurance gene, would you stop? Of course not. Nor should we let such a test dictate what we are capable of, since assuming it has that kind of precise predictive ability is complete nonsense. And so, my answer to Barry in this matter is pretty straightforward. Keep your hard-earned money, definitely keep and protect your DNA, and do not fall for the pseudoscience that would potentially have you believe that you are anything less than what you really are, an avid triathlete pushing himself to be the best he can be, whatever his genetics are. Do you have a question for me to answer on this podcast? Well, send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. I'll have a look, I'll get back to you, 
and I will consider it for inclusion on the show at a later date. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, then you know that the TriDoc is well-versed in the science of endurance sport. If you are looking for a coach who will bring that kind of insight to coaching, someone who brings more than 20 years of experience in racing and the knowledge that comes with years of coaching and both USAT and Ironman U coaching certifications, then maybe the TriDoc is someone you should consider for your coach to help you take your training in racing to the next level. As a member of the staff at LifeSport Coaching, Jeff Sankoff can get you access to team workouts and camps as well as discounts on clothing, nutrition products, and even bikes. So if you are thinking about a triathlon coach to help you achieve your performance goals, visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com to see how the TriDoc can help you get to where you want to be in triathlon. Those websites again, tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com. After spending 28 years in senior marketing roles with Frito-Lay, Pepsi, Omni Hotel, Citibank, and Deloitte, Mike Ween, my guest on the, today's podcast, left the corporate world and for the next 15 years taught marketing and franchising in the hospitality school at Georgia State University. He also worked as a consultant dedicated to helping companies become more effective at growing their business. Mike started competing in triathlons and became a regular competitor in world championships. He's competed in 60-plus marathons, 17 Ironman triathlons, and 19 tri triathlon world championships, including Kona, six times. He won his age group three times at the world championships at ITU Long Course, Ironman 70.3, just this past October, uh, past September, and uh, Olympic distance as well, and also has placed second place at Ironman Kona and won third place at the ITU Long Course and was named the USA Triathlon Grandmaster of the Year in 2019. In October of 2021, just after winning his age group at St. George, Mike went on to win his age group in the Boston Marathon. Mike was also on the USA Triathlon Board for seven years, serving as vice president for four of those and secretary for two. And he is currently chair of the Global Triathlon Safety Task Force under World Triathlon. This combination of real-life experiences has given Mike the content to write a book, The Specific Edge, and develop a speech that focuses on creating a competitive advantage. He weaves relevant stories from his business and triathlon careers into a speech filled with practical ideas for being more successful in deepening relationships with existing clients and developing relationships with new clients. Well, Mike retired from teaching three years ago and moved with his wife, Nanette, to Boulder, Colorado, where he runs, bikes, hikes, skis, consults, and speaks. And today, at least, has slowed down just briefly enough to join me here on the TriDoc Podcast. Mike, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day to join me and uh, talk a little bit about your incredible career. Well, thank you very much, Jeff, and thank you for that Ironman length introduction to <laughs> well i couldn't leave any of that out i mean you've had such an amazing career uh both in the sport and out and uh i just have to say for my listeners uh i we are recording this on video and uh you have to see mike to believe it uh mike you're, you're just aging up to the uh this year right was your first year in triathlon in the 70 to 74 age group I, I just aged up this year to 70. And I got to tell you, Jeff, I really like my new age group. <laughs> it's always nice to be at the bottom of the age group. Well, oh. folks, if you if you have a chance to head over to my uh, TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel, I highly recommend you take a look at this segment because Mike 
does not look anywhere close to his age. And we're going to talk a little bit about that amongst some of the other things we're going to talk about. But first and foremost, uh, I just want to say, Mike, I, I came across you because I read that terrific interview you gave uh, in uh, on the Slow Twitch website. And I'm really grateful that uh, you were so willing to come on the podcast and talk some more because uh, what you've accomplished is just incredible. I, I want to know... What got you into multi-sport as a guy in corporate America, working obviously pretty demanding jobs? What brought you to triathlon? Well, let me see if I can have this the short version. Um, I was with Frito-Lay and I was responsible. This is in the, the late 70s. And I was responsible for recruiting the MBAs as in, in, in marketing. And I was able to take them out and entertain them at some of the best restaurants in Dallas at the time. And I was putting on some weight. So I started running with a group and that all of a sudden over too many beers and a couple of pizzas, we decided to run the New York marathon in 78. So I became a, a marathon runner. Um, I wasn't much of an athlete growing up. Um, in fact, I was the kid who was picked last, um, you know, and, and played right field. If I bet a lot of people can relate to that. And, but endurance seemed to be a, a sport for me. And, and, so I started running marathons and then um, I, I that for about five years and then I continued to work out um, in running, but really not racing. And then uh, about 20 years later, um, I, you know, I, I started running was just too much for me. And I started just biking and swimming along with it, met some really terrific people in triathlon and got interested in that. And that was in uh, really 2003. Um, my niece came to me the same year and said she was going to do the Florida Ironman and challenged me to join and do it with her. And that's, you know, the time when you had to sign up for an Ironman exactly the day after the race the year before. So in 2000, in, in November of 2003, I signed up for my first Ironman in 2004. And and so it was really just the start of wanting to do different sports to take some pressure off my legs and then move into uh, uh, the triathlon as a, as a support, as a, a sport. That's great because uh, you and I both got into the sport at very similar times. So I started in 2001 and uh, I want to get back to that a little bit later because I do want to come back to this notion about being in the sport for the long haul. Uh, but right now, um, I want to ask you something that I ask a lot of successful triathletes, and that is, how did you manage the swimming? Because as an adult learner uh, for swimming, for me, that was the thing that really took the longest to come around and the thing that I struggle, I continue to struggle with. Uh, and I'm just curious, I ask all my guests this, and I got to tell you, the uh, one of my recent guests was um, an Olympian uh, in cross-country skiing, and and he like swims a sub-50-minute Ironman swim, and he's like, well, it's not that hard. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I wish it wasn't that hard for the rest of us, but we're not all Olympians. And I'm just curious how for you, uh, the swimming, uh, how difficult was it to become a proficient swimmer? Well, let me give you the good news first. And that is uh, a swim represents what, 10 to 12% of the total race. Yeah. And especially in my age group, the difference between a great swim and an average swim may be 10 or 15 minutes. The difference between a great run and an average run could be over an hour. Um, I started swimming and when I got interested, it was, you know, when I was doing different sports, it was biking. I picked up first and I started swimming and I started training for a sprint 
triathlon? And, you know, the answer is, you know, how to eat an elephant one bite at a time. Um, I started swimming and I would swim four laps uh, freestyle. And then I'd swim four laps breaststroke, four laps freestyle, four laps breaststroke. Um, and then I'd get out of the pool and go home and go to bed. <laughs> it just exhausted. And, um, you know, I got some coaching, uh, you know, my coaches still laugh at me at the way I swim. Um, but, um, you know, just slowly I continued to add on and I just, I got very comfortable with my pace and, and now I can jump in the water and swim 2.4 miles in the ocean. Uh, I'm not the fastest person in the world, but I get out of the swim comfortable and ready to go for the bike. And, I yep. think that's really interesting what you mentioned that in your age group, you know, the difference in a good to average swim being 10 minutes and then the difference in a good, to, you know, not so good run being an hour because that that really is a big deal. Uh, that's not the case in the younger age groups. I mean, I learned very quickly that if I wanted to have a chance to be at the top of my age group, you can't win on the swim, but you can lose on the swim. And I couldn't afford to come out of the water even five or 10 minutes back was a big deal. Uh, so I had to really work on my swim. And, and in the end, it made me a better cyclist too. I was, al I was always a strong cyclist, but becoming a better swimmer made me a even better cyclist. So, uh, but it's interesting that, you know, as the age groups continue upwards that, you know, the run becomes so much more important. And uh, I think that's a, a very, um, very interesting observation and, and very true. So that makes a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah. Um, did you find success right away or was it something that only came to you after you'd been in the sport for a while? Well, it, 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 uh, it depends how you define success. Um, I did my first Ironman and I took fifth um, and, and was just delighted. And, and by the way, I was 53 years old when I did that. And um you know, I, and, there, and there were four slots and the four people took them. And, you know, my next Ironman was Wisconsin the next year. At, and, and I actually, um, you know, my goal was to, you know, get a slot and go to Kona. And there were four slots there and I took second. So, yeah, I guess I was successful, but it was all about endurance for me. It wasn't talent. Um, you know, it was, and especially the run. Um, you know, I, I even at my first Kona was in, in 16 when I was 55. And I, that was one of the times I podiumed. I was on fifth in Kona, but I came from way behind uh, to get on the podium uh, on the run. Uh, my run has always been um, almost a minute, a mile faster than, than, than most of my peers, but I get eaten alive on the bike. <laughs> Right. But bike for show, run for dough. I mean, you're, you're proving that point clearly. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that's, that's happened to me as a strong cyclist and an average runner. You know, I get passed all the time by the really strong runners, the guys wearing the Boston jackets to the, uh, to the award <laughs> ceremony. <laughs> um, how have you maintained your competitive edge as you've aged? Uh, I think that the more, <laughs> I take the, I really enjoy the sport. I enjoy the people. I enjoy the camaraderie. I always train with people. My workouts are, um, you know, I, I go out to work out to be with people and to have fun. And, uh, you know, maybe it's, you know, it's hard to say, given my success, that I try not to take things too seriously. But, 
I, I make sure that, you know, my workouts and my activities are enjoyment. That's why, frankly, I drive coaches crazy because when I have a coach and they'll tell me I've got to run, you know, a certain amount on Thursday and I got a bunch of buddies who are going up one of the canyons outside of Boulder on Thursday, I'm riding. Uh, I, I'm not running. Um, and, and so um, I just, uh, I train a lot. I, you know, I probably train 20 to 25 hours a week, but you know, it, it's socialization. Um, I train with people who are a little bit better than me, but it's just, the camaraderie is just terrific. I'm also in a, a wonderful position. I mean, um, I know that at my age, I'm a role model for living a active life. And, and I try to encourage people. And, and I know there's a lot of people who I train with who look up to me. And, and, and that's, uh, you know, really a thrill of trying to help people live more exciting lives with passion and purpose. And um, I, you know, I get a lot of enjoyment of it. Well, I want to come back then to the, what, what I mentioned a little bit earlier, and that is this idea about staying in the sport for the long haul, because, you know, triathlon is made up of, I think, some distinct groups of people and more and more with Ironman coming to dominate the, you know, the landscape. And, you know, the 70.3 clearly has a, a large, you know, following, but there is a lot of people who come to triathlon really with the Ironman as a bucket list activity. They do the Ironman and it's kind of a one and done kind of thing. Um, and that's very different from you and me who got into the sport like 20 years ago and have found it to be very much a lifestyle and something that we enjoy. We enjoy all of the various training and everything else. And I'm just curious, you know, I've spoken to other people who uh, are the same way and view this as a, a long haul thing, something they want to do, you know, pretty much ongoing. Where do you think or, or you know, how do you think the sport could, you know, do a better job of, of getting more converts like you and me to, to stay in the sport for the long haul and to keep pushing themselves and find new challenges? Yeah, I think it's about, I, I think we need to focus on the lifestyle, which you mentioned. You know, if you think about it, how many people do go do an Ironman and have any uh, prospect of, of ending up on the podium, let alone qualifying for Kona? I mean, they are really there for a lifestyle, they're for camaraderie, they're for the training. I, you know, and I think that the, the, you know, the great entry position is clubs and creating that social environment. I also think that, look, um, what we've gone through as a society for the last year and a half has been very difficult, but I like to focus on some of the positive things that may have come out of this pandemic. And one of them is, I think that there's been a greater awareness of taking responsibility for your own health and trying to live a more healthy, active lifestyle. And it's not necessarily Ironman, but the sport of triathlon is really plays perfectly into that trend. Uh, same with running. And, you know, I'm encouraged by, uh, you know, just the, the uh, greater interest now in races, not only just in triathlons, but also in, in marathons and, and fun runs. And, you know, hopefully that's a trend that we can capitalize on. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that several times now and I, I couldn't agree more. Um, do you have like anything left to accomplish in triathlon? And, and if so, when, when will you accomplish it? Yeah, well, um, 
<laughs> one of the things I speak about is you need to share your goals or your dreams with other people. Um, I've had the opportunity to win three world championships, which you mentioned in your introduction. Thank you. The best I've ever done at Kona is second. Um, I'm going to be going all out in Kona this October. Uh, as as well, I'll be a 71 year old. We missed this year, but um, that's one of the my goals that I have not attained. And uh, I've taken a second and I've taken a fifth out of my six times to Kona. This will be number seven, and and I'll be going after the the championship. Well, I am. I mean, I'm excited to be at Kona anyways, but I'm now doubly excited to to be there and, and witness that. So I will be looking forward to that. Um, <clears throat> we've talked a little bit about this. I think, I think I know part of your answer to this, but I'm interested in what you consider as somebody who's been in the sport as long as you have and going through the age groups. What do you consider to be the keys to long-term success in triathlon in terms of maintaining health, avoiding injury, keeping motivation high, and being competitive? Yeah, well, I, I hinted at it at the beginning, and that is um, don't make it a job. Make it fun. And by making it fun, um, you know, I talk, about, uh, I, I talk about the three Ps that keep people going. And the three Ps in my mind are place, pace, and people. Pace is, you know, you're running, and, and it, it, it's particularly for new athletes, but I think it applies to everyone. On pace, pick a pace that you're comfortable with. Yeah, you're going to do intervals, you're going to do some training, but don't make every workout a knockout workout that, you know, you're, that's, that's really painful. Enjoy it. Place is, you know, stop running through industrial parks um, you know, we're both very fortunate that we don't have to go too far to just run some in magnificent, beautiful views, wonderful places. And, you know, go out of your way to, to enjoy the scenery. Say hello to the ducks or deer that you run by and just enjoy what you're doing. And the third is people. Um, this morning it was pretty cold. And I run with a group on Tuesdays at 7 a.m. and the sun hadn't even come up yet but they were expecting me to be there. And, you know, and we were going to talk about, you know, the upcoming races that everybody was running. And, you know, as much as I wanted to continue to hug my pillow at, you know, 6.15 in the morning when my alarm went off, I, I was looking forward to being with people. So the three Ps, place, pace, and people. I love that. Uh, I do have one last question about triathlon before I move into some other aspects uh, of what you've been doing. And this one's maybe a little bit uh, uh, darker topic, but I, I know this is something I have thought about a lot and uh, kind of, it's sort of an unspoken thing. Although every once in a while I'll chat with other people in my age group and we kind of talk about it amongst each other uh, ourselves. And I'm curious, do you have any concerns about doping in the male age groups, especially the older ones? Because, you know, I start to see these results, even in my age group, there'll be a guy who's, I mean, finishing a half an hour before anybody else on a 70.3, which just doesn't seem realistic sometimes. And I'm just curious, is that something that you've encountered or it's crossed your mind or have you given any thought to it at all? Um, I'm well aware of some individuals in my age group. And I say that they're, they're well aware that have been suspended or banned from triathlon uh, because they failed a drug test one or two times. Um, 
I think that uh, it it really put a a a, a, a bad mark on the Tour de France. Um, I think that it's definitely in the age groups. I think that everybody's very much aware of it. And I think that uh, our sport should be investing the money in uh, drug testing, maybe not randomly, but um, if you win your age group, um, it's drug testing. And, and I also am aware enough of it about it and study it that, you know, I've heard the experts tell me that, look, only the idiots get, uh, you know, get caught in, in uh, you know, right immediately after the, the race, you know, that they can make adjustments. And, you know, I think that is whether it's USAT or whoever it is, we need to probably invest in, um, you know, the drug, the random drug testing that's not during the race, but, but you know, months before. And frankly, that's where we have caught uh, some of the greatest offenders is not during the race, but before. Um, I think it's a problem. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you can gather from my comments and my relationship with USA Triathlon on the board and, and the, uh, on the safety committee that um, uh, I'd like to do whatever we can. Uh, I just, I don't know how people can really walk away and think that they won if they had to use a performance enhancing drug. Yeah, no, I appreciate those comments very much. And in my conversations with people and in informal polls that either I've conducted or have seen done, it seems like there's a real appetite amongst age groups to or age groupers to see testing and that people would be willing to pay. Uh, you know, if they all chipped in a dollar, five dollars uh, for, you know, that kind of testing, I think people would be quite happy about it. Sign we'll me see. up. I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that, too. Yeah. Uh, okay, I want to move on to some of the other things you've done because they all are fascinating. And you mentioned the Global Safety Task Force. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what that is doing and how it's being applied in real-world scenarios? Yeah, we started it uh, in in, two, in 2018. And, and the thing was that we were seeing, uh, you know, a number of deaths in the United States um, that were occurring during triathlons. And we were getting concerned about it. And we thought that it was not just a uh, USA issue, but it was a global issue. And we thought if we brought, you know, some of the major countries together um, that, you know, we could share best practices. We could also share data confidentially and get a pretty good handle on it. And, uh, you know, that was in 2018 and we developed a task force um, in the task force was three medical directors. We also had a representative from Ironman, and then we had uh, eight different federations uh, represented. You know, some of the, the major federations like the British Triathlon and the um, <coughs> uh, Australian tri tri uh, Triathlon, and uh, Japan was there. Is there? It still is happening. Um, then COVID hit, and our really focus was more on not so much deaths, but health and safety of, uh, uh, you know, of, of and, and being able to continue to run races safely and, and sharing best practices and whether it's the rolling start or masks. And, and that's really the focus has been for the last year and a half. Um, but let me just give you some statistics of, of some of the things we've learned. Um, you know, the majority of the deaths occur in the swim. 
And the majority of the deaths in the swim, you know, you're you're a physician, you'd understand this, occur uh, with men and men who are over the age of 50. Um, and they aren't from drowning. They usually are, the majority of them are some type of pre-existing heart condition that was, you know, uncovered. This is the ultimate stress test, um, especially when you have cold water, when you have the uh, you know, the adrenaline and the excitement of starting out quickly. And it's usually early in the race. And, you know, what kinds of things can we do to minimize that risk? And it, and it isn't necessarily having more lifeguards. Um, it is, you know, things like a rolling start instead of the math starts. And, you know, COVID has been a blessing for us on that because we've gone to uh, mass, I mean, rolling starts. It's water temperature. It's letting people have an opportunity to warm up before they start. And, and so, you know, those are the kinds of things that have been uncovered and we've been sharing best practices. Uh, it really, the focus on death was put on hold, but our deaths were dramatically down since there weren't many events in the last year and a half, but we're about to, we're setting up our, our, our next meeting uh, this month and, uh, you know, really put the program back on track. Yeah, I've reviewed uh, this subject a couple of times, once on the podcast. I also wrote an article for Training Peaks in which I looked at the data that's publicly available. And unfortunately, it's not a lot, but uh, what is out there echoes exactly what you just said. It's it's males uh, in shorter events, interesting. Uh, it's mostly sprints and Olympics. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily uh, tend to be inexperienced people. It, it often is people who've been in the sport for a while. Uh, I've talked with cardiologists as well who have uh, said that, you know, unfortunately, mass screening is not the answer because silent heart disease is really hard to detect. Uh, but invariably, what I uncovered in looking at a lot of the papers that are out there on this is that most of the people who succumb to, uh, you know, an un or previously undiagnosed cardiac condition on the, in the swim will invariably have had some kind of symptoms beforehand and just brush them off and not had them checked out. And so I have repeatedly said on this podcast and elsewhere that if you know, you're know you a male over the age of 40, certainly if you have a family history or other risk factors, if you're having any signs or symptoms, unexplained shortness of breath, lightheadedness, palpitations, or certainly chest pain, those are things that you have to take seriously. Do not pass go, do not collect $200 and immediately get yourself tested for some kind of undiagnosed cardiac problem. So um, I, I'm grateful for the work you guys continue to do. And uh, I look forward to seeing, you know, more come out of it and hopefully a safer overall sport. I, I want to, Hey Jeff, you know, it, it, you know, you're a physician and, and let me just say that what you just described is exactly one of the best practices that we came up with. It's just making sure that people are more aware and that they are taking this, this seriously. Yeah. And the other thing I would say is, you know, as the chair of this global task force, uh, being 70 years old and male and not the best swimmer in the world, I have a little self-interest in, in mm -hmm. this task force myself. I bet. Uh, I want to finish uh, by just giving you the opportunity to tell us all a little bit about your book, The Specific Edge. Uh, I'm intrigued to hear what it's about and uh, how that uh, works into the, the public speaking that you do. Yeah, well, this, I wrote the specific edge specifically to generate speeches and, and to, to generate interest. It was written, you know, I use the Iron Man as a metaphor. 
of being successful. And but it's a business for entrepreneurs about how to grow their business. You know how to you know focus on what you do best. And let me give you the the easiest example. Um, if you know whatever you're doing, whether it's trying to get a job or you're trying to sell a product, um, I, I call it the specific edge pyramid. And it's what are the three things that when they come together make you unique. And one of the examples I give is Crest toothpaste. All right. Crest toothpaste, they, they whiten, they reduce calorie cavities, and they've been endorsed by the, you know, some medical group. ADA, the American Dental right. Association. Thank you. And when those three things come together, you know, that's what makes Crest special. That's what their competitive edge is or their specific edge is. For me, and the analogies I use is, look, I'm a not so good swimmer. I am a above average bike rider. And I used to say that I was a really strong regional runner. I now can promote that a little bit more of saying, you know, I'm really a strong national runner in the long distance. But when those three things come together in a triathlon, I'm world-class. Right. And so, you know, that's just a comparison of the analogy. I'll give you one other quick one, if I may. Um, and I talk about there's... Uh, three things that help you, four things that help you avoid burnout um, in, in, in your career. Focusing on the physical, focusing on the intellectual, focusing on the emotional, and focusing on the spiritual, all right? Now, that's obvious for a career, and, you know, you need to have balance of family and life and, and, and the physical, and, you know, you, you can't just be so focused on your work, but it also applies to triathlons and triathletes. The physical is obvious. You know, I have to know how to pedal up and pedal down. All right. The, the intellectual is in, you know, just getting good training, you know, following, uh, you know, eating well. Um, you know, you talk about, you know, making the uh, nutrition simple, you know, just having an understanding there. The, um, uh, the relationship side <clears throat> is really the emotional side. That's the relationships. I mean, and I've heard you in one of your podcasts talk about this. One of the key things to my success is my wife of 46 years in the net. Because just as an example, um, in the uh, Ironman 70.3 World Championships two months ago, she was on the course at the beginning of the run screaming, Mike, you're in second and you're 10 minutes behind the leader. And as I said, I run an average of a minute a mile faster 10 minutes behind the leader with 12, with 13 miles to go, um, I knew what I had to do. Um, and she's a key part of the team. And then the last one is the spiritual, and that may be your synagogue, that may be your church, but it's it, it may be empathy, but it's it's just recognizing that there's some, some things out there that are greater than you and, and helping others. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that those, so those are the two examples of parallels that I talked about before. Well, I can't think of a better way to finish than that. That was uh, terrific. Thank you. Mike Ween, uh, I can't thank you enough for this conversation. It was really fantastic. You are, uh, you really are an inspiration uh, to those of us who want to continue in the sport and want to continue to excel. And uh, I, uh, I really look forward to uh, having a chance to encounter you in person since we're both uh, very proximate to each other. And uh, if not uh, sooner than certainly in Kona, where I will be out there cheering you on, uh, if not racing alongside of you. Mike Ween, thank you so much. 
for joining me. Oh, and I do want to say uh, we are recording this just a few days shy of the New York City Marathon. Uh, and Mike is headed out there to hopefully again win his age group. So I want to wish you good luck at that. Well, this time I'm I'm no longer an unknown in that area. I have a target on my back. I'm well aware <laughs> because the guy who took second in, in Boston, who was only uh, uh, 27 seconds behind me, is uh, it, it will be there. So uh, it will be an interesting day. Hey, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I appreciate it, Jeff. And since this interview was recorded, Mike went on to win his age group yet again at the New York City Marathon, beating not the second place finisher at Boston, but a complete unknown in a story that Mike related on his Facebook page that I highly encourage you to seek out because it really was a tremendous story. Uh, Not Mike's, but the story of the second place finisher, which he so graciously told and uh, really was effusive in his praise. Mike also participated in the Nationals of the Cross Country uh, um, team competition uh, just recently and finished second in that competition as well. So Mike continues with his winning ways. I was super excited to have him on the show and I look forward to meeting up with him again in the future sometime soon. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at www.tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions or comments about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, I hope that you'll visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as, a, as, well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, There's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast in order to gain access to all of the bonus content that's available at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, train healthy.